I wanted to um, I wanted to talk to you guys from that last passage that we were reading from just a moment ago, and uh, in there is just a, a kind of a word which I want to unpack for us, and which I think is a key to understanding so much of what Christmas is about. But um, I just wanted to start by letting you know that I'm actually a bit of a minor celebrity um, when I was. <laughs> Well, I kind of peaked early, but I was, when I was about six years old, I, uh, I was on TV um, as a shepherd in our school nativity play, which uh, featured on BBC, and uh, it was actually BBC South Today, which is the regional version of BBC, and uh, we, we had a little five to ten minute segment on the news. Um, they brought the cameramen into the school, they interviewed a few of us, and uh, a few things stand out in my memory as I was thinking about it just this morning. I was thinking, the one was that um, I didn't get to be Joseph. They, they auditioned a few of us as kids. We had to sing to a teacher, and um, I really fluffed it, and my friend Alex was Joseph instead. Another thing I remember was that Mary was cross-eyed, which was unfortunate, because um, if it had just been a stage thing, it would have been fine, but she happened to be on TV for all time being interviewed, which I'm sure they fixed it now. But the last thing that uh, was stands out in my mind was that everything about it was perfect. It was cute. Um, it was just everything you want a Christmas production to be, um, with our tea towels on our heads and everything. And in that sense, it, it bore no relation to, to the original, to Christmas as it was when it began, um, and the, what we've been reading about tonight. Because if anything, um, that night was surrounded by uh, scandal, by a lot of fear, uh, this was a teenage mother um, in a very conservative culture, pregnant outside wedlock, um, and also you know, with the frightening experience of having been spoken to by uh, Gabriel, by an angel. And uh, with all the weights, you know, the first passage we read tonight was from Isaiah, written seven plus hundred years uh, before Jesus, and so there'd been all this weight of expectation that someone was going to come and change the world. And then this teenage girl effectively is carrying all of that weight of expectation. And so the whole thing, as we imagine it, was nothing like what appeared on BBC South Today all those years ago. And so what I wanted to do for you guys was just look at this through one lens. And it's one of the names that's given to Jesus in that last passage we looked at, which is in Matthew 1, where the angel says to Joseph that his name is is, is, uh, referring to this passage in... um, in Isaiah, and this quote is, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means, sorry, I'm reading the wrong bit. I told you I couldn't see anything. Here we go. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And that word Emmanuel is where I want us to sit and to think and to dwell this evening. It's uh, from the Hebrew, which is Imanu, which means with us, and El is God. God with us. And I want to say three things about it. That it's a statement of truth, a statement of love, and a statement of hope. But first of all, a statement of truth. What do I mean by that? I mean that there's a, an element here which, if you can accept and recognize, changes everything about how you view Christmas. Which is, of course, his divinity. Um, a little bit earlier, the angel had said to Joseph that Mary, your wife, is conceived, what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, the Christian faith is unique in an aspect here. 
in that you can't separate out the teaching, the kind of body of truth, the kind of ideas, the doctrines that Christians believe, from the founder. And this is very unique among faiths, unique among worldviews as well, because generally speaking, most things that people buy into believe, those things can be separated. So if I give you an example of um, evolution or evolutionism, you don't have to in any way um, know about or particularly believe in uh, Darwin to believe in the theories, the ideas, the teachings. And the same is true for most religions as well, probably all of them apart from Christianity. Uh, if you, you can separate out the teaching of Muhammad in the Quran as something isolated from the man himself. I mean, the message could have come through another vehicle. It didn't have to be him. And Christianity is unique, and so much weight is put on the historical events of this man, Jesus. It really stands or falls based on what you make of him, whether you think he is who he claims to be, and whether, in fact, this is a statement of truth, that he's God with us. And then we have a problem. Because if it all depends on whether you believe that. My guess is that there's a good number of us in this room who are not so sure about that. And in fact, it's one of the most easy things to dismiss from our minds. Because, uh, because of all that's accumulated around Christmas, it feels like, it has the sensation of the feeling of a fairy tale, doesn't it? Um, kind of on, along the lines of Peter Pan or Snow White or one of these things. It features in the same kind of little dramas in schools that we do. And uh, we add to this another factor. I think that this, this dimension of things has become a little bit worse these days in that we have this phenomenon that's broken across our attention in recent days of this whole fake news thing. Have you come across this? So I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Probably the most controversial issue is around the U.S. election. And we're told that, uh, I think BuzzFeed did some research, and they said that Um, the 20 most popular articles that were circulating around the U.S. election before it took place, uh, from left and right, were actually out, were more popular than the 20 most uh, popular real news articles. The 20 most popular fake articles, sorry, I meant to say, were more popular than the real ones. And uh, so one example of this, I saw it on on Facebook numerous times, was a a quote that was a Trump, Trump (laughs) attributed to the, the, the Trump himself, um, where he, he, was, he said this, if I were to run, it's supposed to be back in the 80s or 90s, if I were to run, I'd run as a Republican. They're the dumbest group of voters in the country. They believe everything on Fox News. I could lie and they'd still eat it up. I bet my numbers would be terrific. And I read it and thought, that sounds pretty much like Donald Trump. But apparently Snopes looked into it and there was no evidence whatsoever that he ever said this. So it was one of these kind of fake stories that was fed out. Most of the fake stories were actually on his side against Hillary. So this whole thing has gathered momentum in people's attention. They're asking, there's a lot of soul-searching. What's going on in the world that these things are are propagating, that we believe these things? And it leads us to a couple of um, conclusions. One of them is to realize that humans are ridiculously gullible, that we believe all kinds of things. And uh, with very little evidence, apparently, behind them. So in the New Scientist, they, they ran a, a piece that was talking about, just, they looked into just how gullible we are. And they said, according to several studies, um, even the most obvious fake news starts to become believable if it's shared enough times. So you know it's not true, but you've seen it 15 times. Actually, in the back of your head, you actually start to believe that it is true in some sense. 
And they said fake news stories are engineered to appeal to people's hopes and fears and aren't constrained by reality, which gives them the edge in creating shareable content. In other words, there's a sensational dynamic to all this fake news that's going around. People love it. They eat it up, to use the words, apparently, of Donald Trump himself. So we got this one problem that we realized just how gullible as humans we are. And that's led to another realization, which is on the back of this, that our reaction is to to begin to doubt everything. So rather than wanting to be credulous and believe things, we've become cynical and and doubt things. So the New York Times was talking about this, this, uh, this pattern that's starting to develop where it's creating confusion, they said, all this fake news, punching holes in what is true, causing a kind of funhouse effect that leaves the reader doubting everything, including real news. Now, the reason why I bring all this up is because I think a lot of people, they hear the readings that we've had heard tonight about Jesus, the events surrounding his birth, and they pretty much come to the same conclusion, that it's just a first century example of the exact same tendency that we're now seeing today, uh, writ large across all the social media outlets. Our human capacity to believe nonsense so I thought it might be helpful if I'm going to make this claim that this is actually something true, just to kind of help you draw a little bit of a contrast between these two situations. What we have here in the Gospels and uh, what's being propagated across the media outlets today as, as fake. Let me just help you look at it through these lenses of cost, credibility, and receptivity. Think first in terms of the cost. The BBC was uh, explaining where a lot of these stories are originating from that are going around social media these days. And they said that a lot of it can be traced to one place in Macedonia, a small town called Veles. And uh, these, they're actually mainly boys, teenagers, who are they're, they're, they're leaving school. I mean, it's hard to believe when you actually think about this, but this is what the BBC reported, and I believe the BBC. So <laughs> these guys are leaving their schools. I was on it, after all. They're leaving their schools at, um, and going home, and they're getting on the Internet, and they're spending hours every night inventing stories and then spreading them, paying for a little bit of advertising to help this thing go viral. And they know exactly what buttons to press to try and get, catch people's interest. And the thing about these guys is that they're living in a context where the average monthly income is about 300 euros. But through this method, they can earn 1,500 and sometimes tens of thousands of euros if they're very good at it. So you think, what cost is there to these kids who don't really necessarily fully appreciate the, the negative side of what they're doing, in fact, all they're getting is benefit and gain. And you, you realize there's zero cost whatsoever, this huge gain. Then we look at what was going on at the time the Gospels were, were written. Matthew, who wrote this passage we're looking at. These guys, it cost them everything to not only believe this stuff, but then to devote themselves to Jesus as a result. I mean, it cost them everything. Um, nearly all of those early disciples were martyred. Nearly all of them were martyred. So the cost thing obviously just doesn't compare. People don't invent stuff and then die for it. I've never met anyone who's done that anyway. Here's another thing. Think about the credibility. We're talking, when we're looking at these full fake news stories, we're talking about things that are happening a long way away from the real events, separated by, uh, by many, many thousands of miles in a small town in Velez, and, and, and you can imagine just how ignorant these kids are of the real reality of the people they're writing about. 
when we look at the Gospels, we're looking at flesh and blood eyewitnesses. Men and women who um, were with Jesus and taught with him and knew him and were exposed to his life and his teaching. And then they began to believe in him and circulate what they believed within a geographic region. So when things like this Gospel of Matthew were written down, most of the, uh, many of the eyewitnesses were still alive. You could go and chat to people. You could go and ask them. You could go and meet. Uh, sometimes even Jesus' siblings or people who, who knew him uh, personally and ask them, well, what was he like? Did any of this stuff really happen? Which, of course, raises the bar on just how difficult it is to invent stuff. And think also in terms of receptivity. One of the reasons why these stories have been exploding across the uh, social media outlets is because it's like, it's like touching a match to f- a fuel. It's feeding something in us. We love sensational stories. And we love it, especially when in a world that's very partisan, especially with the split between left and right. We love to promote our candidate as some kind of demigod and, and, and vilify the opposing candidate as a kind of a devil from hell. And... Uh, when you actually begin to look at, well, what was the context for Jesus and the claims that were being made about him, you realize that actually there was nothing but hostility to the kind of claim I'm, I'm saying to you tonight, that he, he was divine. There was nothing but hostility to that claim because we're talking about first century Judaism, one of the most monotheistic, one of the most fierce mono, expressions of monotheism the world has ever known. So for a man to claim to be divine or for others to believe in him, was not going to meet with a receptive audience ready to like and share and all the rest of it. In fact, they were very unlikely to do those things. So it turns out, from my point of view, that we're actually more vulnerable to nonsense today than they were uh, when these things were written. It's easier to make stuff up. I can go home right now and put stuff up on a blog about any one of these guys, and you guys are just going to eat it up, again, just to use those words. And uh, it's, it's easier just to make stuff up, to spread it quickly. But for these guys, the tests of character, the face-to-face credibility, these are very difficult bars uh, to meet, aren't they, in terms of whether it's believable, whether this story makes any sense. And in fact, this flesh and blood aspect is one of the most impressive things about this claim. What do I mean? Well, first ask yourself this. What would it have taken to persuade men like Matthew and the other disciples that Jesus was divine? What would it have taken to persuade them of that? I don't think for most of them it wasn't just one thing. Maybe they did reach a moment where it clicked for them. But it was a a whole collection of things that just came together like strands in a rope, I suppose, that made a very strong case. Things like the prophecies that had accumulated within the the Hebrew scriptures that they'd been brought up to read, which all seemed to overlap and point to this one man, Jesus. Things like um, his miracles, which took their breath away on occasions and often frightened them. Uh, His teaching, which still is changing the world. Probably, even if you've never read the Bible, I'm guessing some of you can quote lines that Jesus said without even realizing that it's Jesus. Um, His character, which I want to just consider in in just a second, but also the claims he made about himself. And last of all, one of the most important strands of this was his resurrection. You know, one of the, uh, the, the men who went from being sort of unsure to becoming a believer in Jesus when he was raised from the dead was Jesus' own brother, James. 
If any of you got siblings, you know they are the last people on earth to ever believe that you have anything approaching divinity. But, uh, but James had grown up, and obviously, for whatever reasons, he hadn't, hadn't quite bought into that and wasn't one of Jesus' disciples to begin with. But when he encountered Jesus risen from the dead, any remaining doubt that he had was swept away. He became one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. His character, Christ's character I just mentioned, was one of those strands as well. And one of the things that people have pointed out over the years is how uniquely he held together all these seemingly contradictory aspects to himself in one person, kind of paradoxes. How can one person be this and this? So things like his high majesty and his profound humility, things like his boldness, he was willing to confront and get angry with people that he he disagreed with, but also a gentleness so that even children were very comfortable to approach him. Things like his fierce defense of righteousness and justice and holiness, but a mercy which made even the most broken people want to be near him and experience his acceptance and his love. Things like his power, which was combined with sensitivity, or his confidence, which was nevertheless combined with approachability. I mean, when Jesus teaches, there is black and white. His way is the truth. And yet people did not feel that he put off by him as someone arrogant. They they wanted to listen to his words. They wanted to feed on his teaching, his purity, and yet his engagement with the most broken people of the world. And I think when people were, were watching him, observing his life, I guess they just couldn't figure out what to make of him because I've never met anyone who combines all of those things in one person. Think about also how remarkable this is in history. What do I mean? Well, I mean, I said a few moments ago that it's almost impossible to persuade the people you're closest to that you're divine. Um, I'm guessing most of you have experienced what it's like to do like a flat share and live with friends or lodges, and, you know, it only takes about two weeks before you realize that is the most irritating person in the world, right? <laughs> Jesus spent years living in the closest confinement and, and relationship with these guys, like Matthew himself, and never once did he do something or say something which caused them to, you know, for all time doubt that he is God. They didn't come to the conclusion that he's brilliant, but just short, like 95%. They were convinced that he is God. There's a historian called um, Huston Smith who, who said that only two men in history have so impressed their contemporaries that they've not just asked, who are you, but what are you? What order of being do you belong to? What species do you represent? He says those two men were the Buddha and Jesus. But when you contrast those two lives, the Buddha had guys around him wanting to revere him as divine, but he strongly and persistently refuted that, even though the context that he was in at the time would have allowed it. It was within a polytheistic context. Jesus, on the other hand, when people began to worship him as divine, accepted that within a context which did not allow it. In fact, the Jews were the least likely people on earth to divinize a man, to say that a man is God. 
Emmanuel. He is God with us. A statement of truth. Secondly, it's also a statement of love. That he is with us. It's the meaning of the word, isn't it? Matthew, uh, in verse 23. They should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I think that um, true commitment is one of the rarest things that we can find in our age. It seems to me to be increasingly rare in every area of life. Um, Think about relationships. I was reading a fascinating article, kind of window into uh, the modern world, really, um, called the Tinder, uh, the Dating Apocalypse, and it was a, a look at Tinder and how it's affecting people's relationships and this aspect of commitment. And one of the things that it says, it interviewed a number of people who are active on this, and they said some of these, these girls were saying that they, they think that absolutely no man who's on there is interested in long-term commitment. Not one of them. Like zero percent. And one of the guys was quoted as having said that to use the app is like ordering takeaway, except you're ordering a person. And uh, I, I think that's such an, a fascinating window into the way we approach commitment. You think about friendships, not many friendships these days seem to last for life. Uh, even in work context, we're increasingly disloyal. I, mean, I think we're all shocked, but we shouldn't have been when Michael Gove turned around and stabbed Boris Johnson in the back this summer. Because it's become the norm, hasn't it, that we don't live within a context where we are loyal, where we are loyal to one another, where we promote the other, and where we are committed to each other in that sense. Why is that? I think part of the answer is that, for whatever reason, we seem to have separated love and promises and uh, divided them as two separate things, and they rarely meet. I read a a wonderful article by a man called uh, Lewis Smedes uh, called The Power of Promising, and he talks about the importance of promising within relationships. He put it like this. He says, when you make a promise... You tie yourself to the other persons by the unseen fiber of loyalty. When everything else tells them they, can't count on, they can count on nothing, they count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they'll know that you are going to be there with them. You have created, he says, a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. This is the power of committed love. What happens when we don't have it? What happens when we as a society are lacking this element of committed love? I think a couple of things happen. One is at the level of society. That society begins to fragment. Smeads put it like this. He says, where people no longer have the inner daring to make serious promises or the grit to keep them, he says, human community becomes a combat zone of competing self-maximizers. So when we're no longer committed to one another in love, we're in competition with each other, in other words. And that begins to happen at the the big level of society. We're seeing division. We're seeing the fragmenting of a continent, aren't we? It also affects us on a very personal level, though, doesn't it? When you don't encounter this kind of committed, covenant, powerful, promising love... I think for you personally, you can begin to feel more insecure, more fearful, and begin to wonder, is anyone really for me? Would anyone be there for me in any of life's circumstances, through anything? 
Now, while I think we're seeing something of the breakdown of that, that power of promising in, in the world that we live in, I think probably there's not a person in this room who doesn't recognize the desire in your own heart to encounter that, to experience it, to receive it, to give it, to be part of that kind of a relationship. How do I know that? Well, because when you see it, something resonates in the deepest part of you. you just think about the example of marriage. You know, we, we see so many sad divorces happening of very famous people, you know, whether it's whatever language it's bound up in, like when Gwyneth Paltrow described it as conscious uncoupling, I was thinking, what? It's so tragic. You have children, you love each other, and you're going your separate ways. But when you see, I mean, just Friday night, um, a friend of our family, a man called Ernest, passed away. He was very old. (laughs) He'd been married for 67 years to his wife, Margaret. And when you see that, there's part of you that just glows with admiration. Uh, One of the most powerful examples of this I've ever seen was in the life of a pastor, a man called Frank Gamble, and his wife Glenda. And uh, they got married in their 20s, and uh, when Frank was 27 years old, they were on holiday, and he began to feel a a twinge of pain in his spine. And uh, they went to the doctors, and what it, it turned out was that he had a condition called ankylosing spondylitis which meant that his spine was beginning to fuse together. The bones would fuse together. For some people, it doesn't affect you too much, but for some people, it becomes a very extreme condition. And he became so rigid, his body was so rigid, he needed constant care. It began at age 27. He passed away when he was 50. And in all that time, his wife, you imagine you, you get married. The last thing you expect on your wedding day when you make promises like to be with them uh, in sickness and in health, is actually that you'll have to come good on it in your 20s. But she stayed with him all through those decades of his illness until he died and became his primary carer through it. You look at examples like this, and it resonates in the deepest part of your heart. That's what love should look like. Love should be a promise to be with someone no matter what. I think there's one, a, a really stunning example of this in the story of the Lord of the Rings. You know how, <laughs> not to trivialize it too much. You know how the nine set out on the quest to take the ring to Mordor. And Frodo is the one carrying the thing. And it, it dawns on him at one point in the story, fairly early on, that by taking the other eight with him, He's endangering himself and he's endangering them. And so he tries to make a runner and go and do this thing by himself, not least to protect his closest friend, Sam. And when they realize that he's disappeared, Sam sets into a blind panic. And he starts scurrying around looking, where's Frodo, where's Frodo? And he dawns on him, Frodo must be in one of the boats. He runs down, sees Frodo in the boat, leaps from the shore to try and get into the boat, and misses and falls in the, in the water. Can't swim. Frodo has to pull him out of the water. And then they start this little argument. And this is a quote straight from the book. Where Sam says, if I hadn't guessed right, where would you be now? And Frodo says, safely on my way. Safely, said Sam, all alone and without me to help you. I couldn't have borne it. It had been the death of me. Frodo says, it would be the death of you to come with me, Sam, and I could not have borne that. 
Not as certain as being left behind, said Sam. But I'm going to Mordor. I know that well enough, Mr. Frodo. Of course you are. And I'm coming with you. When Jesus is presented to us as Emmanuel, as God with us, it's more than just a statement of truth of who he is, that he is divine. It's a statement of love, of God's intention, of his promise, of his commitment to his people. Before long in the Gospels, people start to encounter what this looks like to have Jesus with them. People who are caught up in shame and rejection. Prostitutes who find acceptance with Christ within a culture where, of course, they are the very dregs of society. And they experience what it is to come to him and experience love and grace and mercy for their lives and it transforms them. People in shame and rejection. People who are bound up in fear and anxieties. Jesus keeps saying, I'm with you to give you peace. He promises peace again and again through the Gospels to people whose hearts and souls are in torment. People who are suffering, he's there with them. As when Lazarus passes away, his sisters are in in abject grief. And Jesus goes and he weeps with them before he raises Lazarus from the dead, which he can do. He's with them. In fact, whenever anyone in the Gospel has needs, Jesus is with them. The only people he's not with are the people who don't recognize their need of him. And it's so important that, you know, it's not just about his physical presence on earth, God with us as a man. It was also his promise. Some of the very last words that he said before he ascended to heaven after his resurrection were, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us, is a statement of love. The last thing I wanted to say is that this is also a statement of hope that he can save us. We're told here when the angel is again speaking to Joseph, he says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His name, Yeshua, means that God is salvation. Now, of all the things I've said so far, I think this is probably the most meaningless to us in 21st century London. Um, I think the statement that we need saving and that we need saving from sin makes very little sense to us because we live in a a morally relativistic age. Who are you to say what's right and wrong? And the word sin itself has become like devalued currency in our language. Um, There's a book called Unapologetic by a journalist called Francis Spufford, and um, it's a a really fascinating take on why he's a Christian. But he talks about an example of this with this word sin, how language can become devalued and and warped and transformed. And he says this word sin, that well-known contemporary brand of ice cream, and high-end chocolate truffles, and lingerie in which the color red predominates, and sex toys, and cocktails. The other universal is that sin always encodes, he says, a memory of ancient condemnations, but a distant memory, a very faint and inexplicable memory, just enough of a memory to add a zing of conscious naughtiness to whatever the pleasure in question is. 
what I'm saying is I think that we, we don't really take this concept very seriously these days. Uh, if there is such a thing as sin, then probably it's not my problem. And uh, I, tend to, I would assume that most of us feel that we're on the right side of the good-bad moral equation. And, of course, part of that is just our view of God. That our view of God has been changed, that he's been tamed, that he's been uh, viewed as less pure and holy and righteous than he is. That he's a whole lot more friendly and approachable. One of the things that you, you realize when you look at the lives of great people who have known God through the centuries is that one of the very first things that dawns on them in their quest to know God is how deeply flawed they are. I think about a man like David, who is one of the kings of Israel, in fact, one of the ancestors of Jesus himself. And uh, he is a hero to anyone who's read his, his psalms, his poetry, read his life story, his commitment to God. But he makes some pretty terrible mistakes, and he's very conscious of his weaknesses. There's a moment in one of the Psalms where he's, he's done a terrible thing. He committed adultery with a woman called Bathsheba. And it took him a year to come round to the point where he could come and say sorry to God, come and repent, you know, come and say, acknowledge his sin. And in that Psalm where he's pouring out and gushing out his sense of guilt and his sense of brokenness, there's a line where he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not pointing his finger at his mother and saying, what a sinner she was to conceive me. He's pointing his finger at himself and saying, from the very moment that I was conceived, there were in me desires that I did not know how to handle. There was in me a shadow of brokenness, of frailty, of failing, that as much as I want to change, I I can't change myself. In sin did my mother conceive me. There's another moment where a man called Isaiah, he's, uh, we read from his book uh, at the beginning. He's one of the prophets of Israel. And one of the greatest men who's ever lived, in my opinion. But when he has an extraordinary encounter with God early on in his book, he describes how he could, cry, he could only cry out, woe, woe is me. This is not the kind of language that we use these days. Um, I doubt any of you have ever said, woe is me. You might say, oh, crap, or something like that. But effectively, that's what he's saying. He's, he's saying, I'm in trouble. Because I'm in front of God, and God is holy, and I'm not. And I don't know what to do now. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Which is to say, everything that comes out of us is tainted, is morally corrupt. In fact, even, even when people met Jesus and in his power, one of the things that they experienced was this conviction in their heart. I might be in trouble now. One of his closest friends is Peter. And when Peter sees Jesus do one of his, his miracles, it's a miracle where he, ca- he gets to catch lots of fish. So it's a celebratory moment. It's like a bumper harvest for a fisherman. Peter's reaction is surprising at first until you realize what's really going on. Because he says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So when he's confronted by inestimable power, 
All he can think of is his own failing and frailty, his, his sin. Now, I wonder if it's possible that because we've lost the understanding of what sin does to the human soul, that we're suffering under rampant misdiagnosis for a lot of the brokenness in our society. When I look around, I think, I, I know I can see a lot of soul sickness in London. A lot of people who are struggling with longings that they, they don't seem to be able to satisfy. That's a form of soul sickness. If you had an insatiable physical appetite, it would be classed as a, as a physical disease or a sickness. Well, the same goes for your soul. When you have an insatiable soul longing that can never be satisfied, something is telling you that there's something wrong, there's something broken there. We have widespread melancholy and depression. And people who are bound up in all kinds of fears and anxieties. And a lot of the treatments that are on offer are really good and wonderful things, whether it's finding peace and experiencing the healing in community and relationships and even the medication that can be helpful to many people. But if we haven't gotten to the root of things, if we have never really discovered the diagnosis accurately, then maybe there's a soul sickness which is a little bit deeper and which the Bible accounts for through the running millennia over which it was written and describes as sin our broken relationship with God on on account of our fallenness. If we misdiagnose it, then no amount of treatment will fix you. It can't. We need the answer that Christ provides, that Jesus gives us. But the powerful thing is this, that when you diagnose something correctly, you begin to hope again. I think it's a story for many of these. I'm just looking across the room and looking at so many people I love and who are friends. And I know so many of your stories. And it's been the story of so many of us that when we've come to realize what our real sickness was, was our broken relationship with God and sin, then we began to have hope. Because then we discovered that what it says here about Jesus was the answer we needed all along. He should call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to mend you. He's going to forgive you. He's going to mend your relationship with with God. So, it means that when you look at a story like the Nativity, you look at it through two lenses. One is a kind of a sadness because... What was hanging over Jesus, even from the moment he was born, was a death sentence. Joseph could not have understood it at the time, but when he's told that he shall save his people from their sins, it meant that he would have to die on account of our sin. There's a sadness, because when you look at the crib, and you look at the, the, the crib where the baby Jesus is lying, it's not just about cuteness. There's also tragedy awaiting kind of a sword hanging over him. But there's also profound hope because there was in that this promise. This man would be a savior and he would save and he has saved. 
And so, friends, this is an invitation. An invitation, first of all, to wrestle with this basic question. Is any of this true? And if you aren't sure or you've discounted it, have you ever asked yourself why you've discounted it? Have you ever questioned that dismissal? Is it true? And could I know whether it's true or not? Did any of this actually happen? It's also an invitation to experience the life-changing power of knowing Christ with you. If anything of that resonated with you, the desire to know that someone is for you in committed love and in promise, my friends, Jesus has made himself available to us in that way. When you experience his love, it changes your life. And it's also an invitation to have an assurance that he alone is the solution to your soul's deepest need. To feel clean. To feel forgiven. That is what Christmas is about. That is what it meant that he was Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray together, shall we? We come to you, Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And Lord Jesus, we pray, may you bring home the reality of your great power to change lives to minds and hearts this evening. The people in here would leave with a fresh belief, a conviction, that if any of this is true, they must know. And I pray, Lord God, that you will help us to celebrate Christmas in a way that honors you as the one who gave everything for us. We pray it in your precious name. Amen. Amen.